Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself it's the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon back for another week. I am back home in London. Jeff is in Adelaide, having been in uh, Canberra and Melbourne since we last talked. He's been on a bit of a road trip. We've got a busy show today. Uh, we've got a couple of interviews. We're paying tribute to Andrew Simons where uh, we've got announcements galore from England. We're talking to one of our listeners who's become an international cricketer at age 40 last week. A beautiful story, uh, which will pop on the end of the episode. Uh, hello, Jeff. It's going to be a big one. It is going to be. And as you say, I've been bouncing around. I suppose it's, it's usually the summer when I'm travelling around Australia domestically, but had a family wedding in Canberra, drove back to Melbourne and then headed over to Adelaide. So tonight we go to see the Avalanches play their album since I left you with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> this is what what ragers do um, as, as, their, as their age ticks by. So it's a, a, a many times postponed show because of uh, the last couple of years and uh, at last it's going to happen. Very nice. That's uh, That sounds like a great way to spend an evening uh, in the City of Churches. I uh, said so I'm back in London having finished up in Dubai and getting the red eye home on Sunday night. That was fun. Uh, getting Winnie out of bed at midnight, taking her to mm. the airport, jumping on a 2.30 overnight flight. She was uh, fairly ratty but we got back in, uh, in, in one piece and I think more importantly Rach got back in one piece having to Mm. kind of uh, cuddle her the whole way home because she was having none of me on the flight. She just wanted mummy. That was the only thing she was going to cop. Right. But no, <laughs> the, the, the last few days of fair break after we um, spoke on the weekly show last week were thoroughly nourishing as the whole two weeks were really. Um, the fact that Mariko Hill and Winifred Durasingham, who we spoke to last week on the show, faced off in the final was really nice. Uh, Mariko came in when the Warriors were about, I guess they were about three for 40-odd, three for 50-odd in the power play, and she batted the whole way through with Marazan Cap, and then Winifred bowling uh, tidily at the other end, so it was a nice kind of final word moment, which a couple of people uh, picked up from the decider. Winnie was on the winning team, and in the team of the tournament, so yeah, loved uh, her story arc, if you like, through the duration of it, and glad we got to speak to her last week. And uh, I'm reliably informed that your Winnie got to meet the other Winnie as well. So oh, yes. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that that panned out. Yeah, it nearly didn't. So Winnie and Winnie met uh, when we did the interview, and my Winnie was just a little bit nervous, just a little bit anxious about, and, and jealous actually, because we were trying to explain to her there was another Winnie, and my Winnie was having none of it, and neither of them had met another Winifred before, which was nice. And Malaysia's Winnie <laughs> messaged me a couple of times and said, "Let's try and set it up and have the have us meet again." So we did uh, over breakfast on the final day. They had a bit of a cuddle. Actually, she took her away and walked her around for about ten minutes at one stage. 
there, which was nice to give Rachel a break too. So, yeah, it was it was a, a nice way to win the tournament. I should say, by the way, uh, from our interviews last week, a number of people got in touch wanting to know more about Brazilian women's cricket. Well, two things for that. You can listen to the interview that we did with Roberta and Matt Featherston about 13 or 14 months ago, that's in the feed. And two, Alistair Townsend, who was the conduit between us and Roberta at the very start, wanted to remind us that Brazil have that crowdfunder going. Uh, we'll drop that into the show notes. That's been quite important for them, just having a, a, a base to work from money-wise. So if you want to get involved with Brazil cricket more generally, there's there's a way to do so. While on last week's app, thanks to everybody who got in touch around the bra chat. Uh, I, that was a bit of a, a last-minute thing uh, with Deidre McGee. I wasn't quite sure where we dropped it in but because of the um, logistical challenges that we had last week unable to record story time that was only a 15 minute chat but I, I got so much out of it especially the link between shoulder injuries for women potentially and um, this has not been completely um, uh, established yet but her working theory that we've kind of solved the the women's shoulder problem or she thinks she might have uh, which we've been talking about Jeff for at least three or four years pondering why there are uh, a higher percentage of shoulder injuries in women cricketers compared to men and, and so it goes it might come down to the fact that they're wearing a number of them have been wearing the wrong bras and that's an, an easy win not to mention the protection element there as well that again I suppose as blokes we seldom think about these things but where the breast is exactly and how it can affect other parts of the breast and wicket keepers especially who cop balls towards the clavicle and it's not thought of as breast tissue, but it is. Uh, so, yeah, mm. an insightful conversation with Deidre. I'm, I'm glad we found time to, to squeeze it in. Well, I think it's notable how many people listening got in touch and said things along the lines of, um, I, had, I hadn't considered any of this before and, and now I feel like I know more about it. So I think that usually indicates that we're talking about something worth talking about. Um, and, and also, uh, hello and thanks to everyone who got in touch about the weekly episode around the the Joe Clark conversation that we had last week. That response seemed significant as well, that uh, yeah. the, the people felt heard in the things that, that they'd been saying and, and the concerns that they'd been bringing and, and that we were able to talk about that a little bit. And, and I think there'll be a lot more talking about it that needs to be done as we go on. Um, you know, hope, hopefully less. Hopefully there needs to be less, but there probably will need to be more. Yeah, and I think that that conversation online was pretty measured and constructive as well. Like, you know, this went this reached boiling point a few weeks ago and this didn't feel like it had the same sort of intensity around it. There was more, I guess, a bit of sting out of it, hopefully, because of the way we approached it, maybe. But, yeah, likewise, I was grateful for all the messages that we got around that. And, and our objective was to, yeah add to the conversation in a productive way and, and hopefully we nailed that. Jonathan Lee wrote a piece for The Guardian yesterday which was along a similar line which I can recommend as a follow-up there. That was in uh, The Guardian I think about maybe on Monday, something like that. So I can recommend mm. that, that reading as a follow-up to the podcast last week. And Jeff, as we get into the main part of the show, uh, tragically it's to reflect upon the death of a, another Australian cricketer, uh, Rob Marsh and Shane Warne dying in consecutive days uh, back in March was a, a massive blow. And then Andrew Simons uh, at age 46, a fatal car accident in Townsville or in northern Queensland, about 50 kilometres out of Townsville, I believe it was, that packed a punch uh, when waking up a couple of days ago. It really does pack a punch that news it was completely unexpected and it's been a horrible few months really um even going back beyond rod marsh and shane Warne, you know dean jones we lost dean jones not yep. that long ago yep. now and also at, at an age younger than you would have expected 
him to, to, to depart and, and some, you know, there were former Australian players who died at more advanced ages like Alan Connolly and, and Ashley Mallett. Uh, those ones were less expected maybe, but the Dean Jones, Shane Warne, Andrew Simons trio, none of those were players of an age where you would have, have expected them to be um, at risk of dying and yet there they've gone, uh, one in their 40s, one in their 50s, one in their 60s. So, And, and the three real big-name entertainers as well. Uh, they're, they're, they're players with so much charisma around them and so much emotional investment around them. And uh, I think the response that we've seen to Andrew Simons dying has shown that, that, that the kind of joy that he brought to people as a player because, because everybody wanted to, to switch on when he was in the middle. And to add to that, let's pick up the conversation that we had with Robert Craddock from the Courier-Mail yesterday. Robert covered uh, Andrew Simon's career from when he was literally a child and I thought there was no one better to get on the final word to reflect on the life and times of uh, the man they called Roy. Going back to the very start, there was that kind of whisper across the country, wasn't there, that this kid could be special. I think back to 94, 95 and the season he had in England in 95 before he properly exploded in Australia that um, that there was this sense that there was this guy coming through who could be anything and, and so it proved. Yeah, look, you're right, Adam. Like, I've got mates who bowled to Andrew Simons in the under-12 Queensland Carnival, and he scored centuries for North Queensland. Now, when you're 12 years old, a century's a big thing. Mm. He always had a bit of panache about him, and I remember a Sunday morning getting a phone call at work, and they said there's two young Gold Coast kids called uh, Andrew Simons and Matthew Mott have just had a partnership of 450. <laughs> Would you like to speak to them on the phone? And this little voice came on the phone, hello, it's Andrew here. And from those <laughs> humble origins, but eye-catching origins nonetheless, Grew a, a, a larrikin, an enigma, a man of contrasts, uh, one of the likes of which we'll never see again. And Robert, Australian parochialism is a funny thing. In a lot of ways, the state identities don't matter, and in, in some other ways, they do. But you know, Andrew Simons always seemed to be someone who really thought of himself as a Queenslander. And I guess in in your position as also being a, a Queenslander, what did he mean in that state context rather than as an Australian player? Look, it was an interesting one, and I'll tell you why. Because when he broke through, I remember he scored a century in a touring game, I think, against England. And the England journalists interviewed him when he was a young kid uh, of about 90. And they said, mate, are you Australian or are you English? And he said, I'm Australian. And I felt that that whole cultural thing behind Andrew of being English-born and adopted by his parents, Ken and Barbara, who he absolutely loved, um, shaped his persona, Jeff, in that he overly went to prove himself as an Australian. He wanted to identify as the guy with the Kelpie dogs who were with him at his death, uh, the guy who drove the ute, the guy who wore the Akubra hat uh, and had a bit of a Paul Hogan twang to him. And, and so, in other words, I think a lot of that was subliminally his way of saying, I'm Australian, and especially, if you don't mind, I'm a Queenslander. And as a cricketer, I mean, I think it's worth remembering that even though he was a prodigy, it took him a long time from first making his Australian debut to, to sort of being a superstar. There's like a five-year window there, isn't there, between 1998, and then he's kind of competing for a spot with initially Shane Lee, occasionally with Ian Harvey. He doesn't quite dominate at that next level. 
until Ricky Ponting really backs him in before the 2003 World Cup. He he hadn't been performing for Australia in, in the 12 months before that. Uh, and then I remember well, it was New Year's Day 2003 when they named the, the World Cup squad and Simons was playing for Australia A and Ricky Ponting said, I want him with me. And, and that proved to be the defining turning point of his career. But, but it didn't come automatically. No, it's a very good point. I think he'd average five, I think, for Australia and white ball cricket that summer. But look, that's a good story in itself. For Simons to excel, he had to have a captain he loved. He loved Ricky Ponting. He fell out with Michael Clark. He did not love Michael Clark, and he struggled lately under Michael Clark. So he needed to feel the love from above. But the other thing, point you make is a very good one, Adam, and I'll take that further. Andrew Simons struggled when he first played one-day cricket for Queensland. He struggled when he first played Sheffield Shield cricket for Queensland. Everywhere he started, he struggled initially and then found his way through. He had a lack of confidence. Look, he was an interesting player. Everyone said he was a natural player, but Matthew Hayden said to him time and again, Andrew, you can only be a natural player if you face 10,000 balls in the off-season. Then you can throw away the sheet music and play the piano. It's interesting that point that you make about the lack of confidence or the the need to prove himself and when you bring in those issues around race and so on they're hugely significant if you look at you know how many black players have played for Australia in in the men's team you know Sam Morris in the 1880s Andrew Simons are the only two that I can think of off the top of my head and he he had that identity where he was an adopted kid and and he was brought up as Australian and he didn't necessarily identify with that background but he was always seen as belonging to that background because of you know the way he looked or the way he wore his hair or or whatever it was all of that seems bound up in how his career went the uh, the walls that he ran up against the 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 difficulty with the Harbhajan Singh controversy and and all of the rest of it and the way that he felt unsupported in the end by the Australian cricket team or by the administrators um, when he'd been spending all his career trying to become part of that team and then he didn't really want to be part of that team anymore. Yeah, look, exactly. He he was a man who, if if he didn't feel he trusted you, he wasn't worth anything. Like, he told John Buchanan in 2001 he was retiring and playing, going to join the Broncos to play rugby league because he didn't trust his teammates in the Australian team. Look, Jeff, he was a man of contrast. Early in his career, John Buchanan gave him permission to throw away computer printouts for about his form because he didn't want to clutter his head. And yet in retirement, Simons was seen in the commentary box with his own little, keeping his own little statistics that are quite quaint on, on fielding and everything like that. So he looked really confident. He had a swagger to him. But beneath it, he did lack confidence. He lacked confidence in his intellect and he was far smarter than he gave himself credit for. Scholastically, no. I mean, Michael Kasperitz and the boys will tell you stories that he'd say, oh, mate, I got your invitation to your wedding, but I have an RSPCA yet, you know? And he'd talk about having too many beers at a pub and he said the barman didn't throw us out but then the Republican came and did. So everyone's got a story about Simo getting the the English language and twisting it in his own sort of way quite innocently. He had a character, you know, true blue character. But um, 
as you say, so many contrasts, such an enigma, but needed to trust the people he was with. And clearly that was the case when he does break through in 03. We mentioned that turning point before that World Cup. I mean, it's as though it's when they desperately needed him to stand up. You know, Shane Watson doesn't make the trip due to injury. Um, Shane Warne isn't available after the controversy of the previous evening. It's got to be Simons. And he walks out at three for not many, makes perhaps the greatest Australian World Cup innings, 143 not out against Pakistan to get the, the party started in that tournament. 91 not out in the semi-final when they needed him there as well. Um, so when everything did go right, he was someone who Australia could depend on. They just needed to, as you and Jeff are discussing there, they needed to get the preconditions right to get the best out of him. They did. And look, uh, Adam, I was there that day and you can't fully convey the drama of having Shane Warne ruled out of the World Cup on the morning of the first day. I mean, I didn't even cover the first game. I didn't do a match report on it. All I did was six stories about Shane Warne and where he's going. They were in turmoil, Australia. And Andrew Simons walked through the debris and played the innings of his life. I really do think that. And so, you know, he, he could surprise you. And the only thing I'll say about his career is this. I've just been on a panel show where people have pointed out his wonderful one-day statistics in World Cups, what he the average 60 or something, and, and, you know, the good strike rate. But I reckon he could have even been more damaging for Australia in white ball cricket. Here's why. He played the majority of his career before the start of the IPL, and I think once the IPL started, it liberated players a bit. They earned, they had options, they were earning big money elsewhere. And I think it loosened him up to really attack, to find that fifth gear. Whereas before the IPL, a lot of players, even the Cavaliers like Simons, were stuck in fourth gear. You know, they, 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 they didn't quite find their fifth gear because you did, that sort of wasn't the way. And, and, and I think, mm. you know, that it'd be interesting to see if he went back now what his strike rate would have been in, in T20s and white ball cricket. And there's also the way, Robert, that he, he he found the way to get through in test cricket as well because, and that took him a couple of years, you know, he he had Ricky Ponting backing him in again there. He had some false starts and so on and he had that, that Boxing Day test when, you know, he gets a first baller in the first innings and it seems like he's on his way out of the team and then there's that liberation you're talking about. He comes out, I remember I was there that day and just the way he went after the bowling, clearing the fences at the MCG and made a big half century and, and suddenly it looked like, you know, maybe this guy's figured out how to do it and, and from that point on he did play a fair bit of test cricket and, and did acquit himself well. Oh, yeah. And, and look, let's give him credit as a test cricketer. I mean, his test average is 40 Asked England what they wouldn't do now for a batsman who averages 40 and takes one wicket a test who and who can bowl off spin and medium pace and save you 10 runs in the field. And the, hey, do you know that the quaint thing is about Andrew Simon's funny little fielding statistics that he keeps and he gives guys bonuses for saving runs? The single most cricketer who would have benefited most from that in the last 30 years would have been Simons himself. Mm. It would have showed how many runs he saved in the field. And I'll just give you a simple statistic. His test batting average was 40. I'll tip that he saved 10 runs per innings in tests. Hey, that's 50. Mm, mm. You know, that, that walks with some that walks with the nobility of the game. Yeah, and that's why I mean, someone like Richie Beno loved him so much as a fielder. He would just go on about the runs that Simons would save, and when he did finally get 
there on the big stage, the test stage. I mean, on, I was there the day Jeff referred to before and also 12 months on from that, the Boxing Day test match of 2006. Mm. We, we all know about what happened on Boxing Day, but on the 27th of December with 85,000 people there, it was, remember it was a sellout day one and day two, he making that maiden century, that joyous moment with his arms in the air before the ball had even gone over the rope from Paul Collingwood, re- jumping into Matthew Hayden's arms. I mean, they are, they are iconic ashes in Images. He, he's not known as a test cricketer, but one of the, the best MCG moments I can ever remember. Oh, yeah. And, and look, I, I spoke to Matthew Hayden two nights ago about it, and he said, mate, that was the sweetest, most satisfying moment of my career. And he said, and I know I didn't even hit the shot. Mm. He said, but Simo and I had shared births, deaths, marriages. I, 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 I'd thrown a million balls to him in pre-season. We'd been shipwrecked together. <laughs> and, and to see him, to see his joy, he said that he jumped into me so passionately that the helmet cutter cut into my forehead. He said, but I c- couldn't feel the pain. I was so excited. And when they went back to the dressing room, they had a beer at the end of play and, and basically everyone left. And it was just the two of them in the corner of the room. And Simon said to him, you know, mate, you know why this is so satisfying? It's simply this. He said, I just never thought it had happened. I just never thought that this moment would come. He said, there's always seems to be a pitfall there for me somewhere. So, you know, these are, you said it, Adam, it's an iconic moment in the game. And um, what I find, you mentioned how Richie Benno liked Simons. You know, I'll I, I tell you something funny. The people who liked him most were those opposite to him. Straight-laced Adam Gilly, Richie Benno, John Buchanan, people... <laughs> Pick, pick Mike Hussey. Pick, show me a straight man, and I'll tell you a, a simo file. <laughs> it's, it's almost because it was almost a man they wanted to be. The bit of the rap scallion, the larrikin, you know. So that's one thing I've noticed. Show me a straight guy, and I'll show you someone who loves Andrew Simons. Yeah, it's very easy to to look back and love him. In retrospect, love some of the things that he did, those those moments that bring us all a lot of joy. Uh, and there is also this sadness in there, you know, not just for the news we've had the last couple of days, there was this existing sadness about the way that his career wrapped up, the way that he wasn't able to achieve all that he could have achieved and, and the way he ended up sort of being squeezed out of, of that Australian team, partly because of the way that the administrators had treated him in, in the years before that. Oh, absolutely. He was a broken man after Monkey Gate. He he drunk heavily. And I I don't think he ever quite got over it, Jeff, I I have to say to you. But still, there was enough of his career to leave an eternal mark on the game, you know. And I I think um, it's a unique stamp. The the game will never see anyone else like him. And, and, uh, you know, it it is remarkable, really, what, what he achieved. Uh, and and the, the, the bottom line was, excuse me, I'm just at the airport here, that his teammates always loved him. He had he had many a blue with journalists. I, I went, went, went uh, for about a decade not talking to Andrew or he wouldn't talk to me. We got back together on the set of Cricket Legends. We walked in the green room and I said, oh, how are you been? And he said, what, uh, the weekend or the last decade? And I said, oh, both. And then, then he just sort of laughed. He said, mate, we're too old for this. And I said, yeah, let's just do it. And you know what? We did 44 Cricket Legends series, and he was always my favourite because of his honesty, 
you know, his humility, humility and ability. So I stuffed up. Uh, Robert, I'm mindful you've got to get on a flight, so I'll let you go and do that. But thank you so much at short notice coming on and having a conversation with us about Andrew Simons. Uh, it's an enormous loss. It, it really is, Adam and Jeff, and uh, it was my pleasure to be on the podcast. Honestly, I could talk forever. And that's a sign of a career of so many threads. Uh, what a career it was, what a life it was. It, it, he, we're all very sad about it, but he was a man who left his mark. It was my pleasure. Thank you, guys. See you soon. Safe travels. Thanks again to Robert Craddock for making some time there as he was jumping on a plane. He's a very busy man, and it was great to have him on the show. I thought we should just elaborate on a few of those points that we touched on briefly there, Jeff, not least Monkey Gate. It's not a nice topic uh, to go straight back into, but I, I think it's worthwhile. Let, let's be crude. Uh, and Dan Brittig uh, wrote about this in Whitewash to Whitewash a, a number of years ago now, and, and Andrew Simon spoke about it a lot in recent years, that he felt as though, not unreasonably, that CA sold him down the river, that there was an opportunity to back their player or, or to acquiesce to the BCCI at a vital juncture in that relationship, and, and they chose the latter. It's the kind of thing that you see repeated in different ways in so many workplaces and, and by so many uh, businesses, and CA often see themselves as a business even though they're not really and, and shouldn't be thinking of themselves in that way. It's all about what is the best thing for the company financially uh, rather than what's the best thing for the people involved and, and cricket should be about the people and should have been about the people. Uh, but in the middle of that situation, I mean, it was very difficult to find a, a way out that would have satisfied all parties because there, well, there, there was no way out. Uh, the BCCI were never going to accept that. Uh, what had been alleged had actually taken place. The hearings about it were farcical. Uh, the conclusions reached were a sham. And in all of that, the expectation was basically placed on Simons to say, well, don't rock the boat. You know, we'll we'll look after you with contracts and so on. You're our player, but uh, you need to take this accusation away or you need to keep quiet about it. Um, but this, this all happened after multiple players had gone on the record saying mm. that they had heard it happen. But there were Indian players prepared to go on the record and say that it hadn't happened. And so there was no willingness to approach it with goodwill and try to solve it. It was more just, we need this problem to go away. Um, we need this to stop and, and we can't afford to have anyone banned for it. We can't afford to acknowledge that it happened and therefore you just have to shut up. And, and as we've seen with so many investigations into any kinds of abuse historically and so on, the most important thing is to be heard, to be acknowledged, you know, to have others acknowledge that what has happened to you has happened to you. And when you're denied that, it that's the thing that hurts people most and, and that causes the damage that stays with them. Yeah, and I think it was all the more acute because of his life story and, and Robert was able to add to that, you know, as he explained, he was Caribbean extraction but had been born in England. He was a Queenslander who was from, well, growing up in, in one part of the state, moving to another, bouncing around the world playing cricket. There was something about his identity which was a point of curiosity and I think that the fact that it was a race drama or a racism drama at that particular time, it's on a cricketing front sad because that's just when he seemed to have found the cheat codes to test cricket about a year before. It was when he makes that marvellous century at the MCG that we, we spoke of. I, I mean, this sounds like a small thing, but I think a significant thing. On Christmas night, I remember 2007, so about a week and a bit before the, the Monkey Gate 
brouhaha. He was on the panel on the Christmas edition of the panel. Now, that sounds like nothing, right? But, it, you know, he was a proper senior player. He was a, mm. an established all-rounder in the team. There was no doubt about his spot at that particular point. He was a loved senior player in the team as well. And to think that it all unraveled pretty quickly after Monkey Gate, you only got to press fast forward. 15, 16 months before he gets sent home from the World Cup in 2009 and, and that's the end of his career. And even the fact that CA built into his contract in uh, that year that he that he couldn't drink, I mean, how ridiculous is that? I mean, who who was who subjected to those kinds of terms and conditions by their employer that they can't have a beer? And now yeah. I don't know what it said precisely, but that was certainly the, the take-out point for him. And yeah, he lost faith in the organisation. And there's a quite instructive interview with Andy Bull, which I read when linking through from Alex Bowden's tribute to uh, Andrew Simons on, on the King Cricket website, an excellent blog, which I can recommend, where he says when signing for Surrey for the T20 competition in 2010, how happy he was at having left the international scene and playing a bit of T20 cricket and having time to, as he described it, I'll play a few weeks of cricket and I'll go fishing for a few months. And that, that was his true north, I suppose, you know, enjoying his cricket and enjoying his life and as he explained in that interview he felt he lost time for himself and the turning point was clearly uh, what happened in, in January 2008 so it's a shame that there was that period of time when he was considered a loose cannon owing to the way that it ended but I like the fact that Towards the end of his life, he became quite an interesting commentator. You know, he didn't wear the uniform when going on air. He wore what he would wear any other day, that he would wear a baseball cap or, a, a, you know, a, a Brisbane Heat cap or whatever it was, that he would go on there and have his own book that he would keep on fielding. And even though his international career didn't end in, in fine form, it didn't detract from the way that people saw him. As you pointed out off the top, uh, Jeff, as someone who just brought immense joy all the way back to the um, mid-'90s when... Uh, yeah, we, we would hear about this Andrew Simons character, what he was doing in England, the fact that the Poms wanted him to play for them and he told them to stick it up their ass type thing. Uh, it all added to it over that long career and, <laughs> uh, and yeah, the, the high points being uh, that extraordinary century to start the 2003 World Cup and, and his maiden test 100 in Melbourne in 2006. Well, it, it seems pretty likely that if, if he had played for England, you know, they would have had him play 16 games or something and then botched it somehow and got rid of him and, you know, done the, the sort of classic England I don't thing. Know. With a, with yeah, I don't re- I reckon on the contrary. I mean, he was so good as a youngster over mm. there. He was so good. I mean, that season in 1995 when he made the 258, which was where he hit the 16 sixes, which was only broken, you know, two weeks ago by Ben Stokes, wasn't it? I think I'm right in saying that. I think 16 was the, the record until Stokes. I don't know. I, there was something about him in England. Dave Fulton, who I've done quite a lot of work with over the journey, the former Kent captain. He was Simon's captain at Kent uh, when he was the T20 pro that would come over and, and all the rest for a number mm. of seasons. And he, he would just describe the way he would just monster England attacks. There was no answer when Simon's was in form. He hit you know, a couple of sort of 45 ball hundreds and that, that kind of thing. And you can expect that. And, and yeah, this was a, a point that, that Robert made as well, wasn't it? That he was so well suited to T20, but he reined it in because he was ahead of the game. that's like, what you did. It's what you did. You, you, you didn't want to be seen at a 50-over level to bat in too cavalier a fashion because that would you'd still be seen as a, a profligate player. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be seen as doing the right thing. As a T20 player for Australia through that stretch, he would have been seen as the, the model short-form cricketer. The time frames didn't quite align, even though he did get to play in the IPL for a number of seasons and, and make plenty of money. It, as far as Australian representation was concerned, it didn't quite line up. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think 
you know, my standout memories of him and, and maybe those of, of some other people of a similar generation, they are as a 50-over cricketer, but it's not so much when he'd worked at Adelaide, but it is in those early few years where, you know, there were some matches when Ian Harvey and Shane Lee and Andrew Simons were all playing. And I, yes. I remember being thrilled by this, you know, thinking yes. how exciting it was that there was a team where they batted down to number nine and everybody could bowl. And it was a bit like the Australian women's team has been in the last couple mm, of years mm. where there are so many options of both stripes and, you know, maybe the freaks coming in at number nine and mm. and, and Simons could, you know, could mix up between his bowling disciplines and, and they'd take wickets between them and so on. And he didn't do huge things with the bat. He was the kind of player who might make you know, 27 off 18 or something towards the back end of an innings. But it was always exciting. But the th- the thing that was really him for me was the fielder. You know, he was he was Simon's the fielder. That was, that was half of what he was there for because he was so fast. He was so aggressive. He hunted in the field. You know, he prowled around. He had this beautiful athleticism um, and he would just go after the ball with with ferocity uh, and and the number of runouts that he had you know I'd love to see the numbers in terms of you know runouts per fielding innings and so on and, and where he sits there because he he seemed to be a direct hit thrower par excellence he hit the stumps so much more often than most and and from difficult angles and, and, and different positions on the field so you know that's that's really what I remember him as as a player was fielder first and then everything else came along afterwards yeah I mentioned Richie Benno before but it's it's great that Benno is on the commentary when he executes that run out when sitting down which is just mm. ridiculous after making an absurd stop to begin with and you know, there was an affection that Benno had for for Simons that would come out every time he was on on commentary and yeah, I think that in closing off on, on this discussion, it's worth remembering Simons in totality as a as a once-in-a-generation talent who didn't quite fit at different times, be it in the teams that he was being picked for or in the era he was in, but still managed to leave an enormous legacy on the game and some gigantic moments, not least um, World Cup wins and, and his involvement in the Ashes of 06-07. So yeah, devastating that he would die so young and, and leave behind family and children and, and so on. It's, um, it's a shocking loss. And uh, yes, our condolences to, to everybody uh, in the Simons family and beyond. Jeff, it's also been a very busy week in English cricket again, and it's only gotten busier in the last hour or so with the ECB naming their test squad for the New Zealand series, which begins on the 2nd of June. The chief executive has formally stepped down yesterday, Tom Harrison. Brenda McCullum has been named as the test coach. Matthew Mott has just been confirmed as the one-day coach. It is all happening in English cricket. Had we known it was going to be like this, it would probably be a slightly different episode today. We might have got a guest on and, and dug a bit deeper, but um, let's try and just, on the surface at least, uh, reflect on each bit of that. Let's start with Brendan McCullum. A surprise appointment because his name wasn't really floated until the last minute. There's two sides to this, isn't there? There's the, gee, that's a pretty bloody good fit. You know, we know what Brendan McCullum was able to do for the New Zealand Test team as an unexpected captain uh, when they Mm -hmm. were at a really low ebb, and that's what England are at at the moment. He's got experience in franchise cricket. He's not that old, like he's in the same age bracket as a number of the senior players, and he plays so aggressively, and he's such a likeable character. Then there's the other side of it, which is, well, I mean, what right does he have to step into a test coaching role with limited experience as a coach in red ball cricket, and as Izzy Westbury described it, as being emblematic of the chumocracy that you sometimes see uh, with cricket appointments. So I see both sides of it, but I'm drawn to the first, because I think with McCullum, 
he did seem to, for a time there, just look like he was the most important person in, in Test cricket, in world cricket, for a couple of years when, when leading that New Zealand team. And that's the sort of leadership they need right now, England. It is an interesting one in that way, isn't it? it it's... It's 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 a little like having gone towards the side of the the media cricket folk in in getting Rob Key to run operations in England. It's no surprise that his appointments have gone in that direction as well. You know, Brendan McCullum has been doing TV commentary and and so on, and, and spent plenty of time with Rob Key presumably in the last few years. And so it's not that surprising that. Rob Keyes decided to go towards someone he knows from that world rather than one of the coaches who's on the coaching circuit, as it were. You know, Brendan McCullum hasn't been tried as the coach of a first-class team, and so some people have suggested that he shouldn't have been employed because he doesn't have that record, but it also means, in a way, that he's coming to that job fresh. He can he can bring a, a new approach to it. It's not a, a template that he's been setting up at other teams. He's going to approach that job in an individual sort of way and and I suppose look it might not work and if it doesn't there'll be criticism for all of the reasons outlined above but he was a player who had such a dynamic effect on the team that he led when he captained New Zealand that if there's a chance that he can impart a bit of that he, he can produce something similar with England and and bear, you know bearing in mind this is a team that as a white ball team have been so successful by being bold and being aggressive on the field and, and and backing themselves in versus a test team that have been very reactive and hesitant and, mm. and absolutely the opposite, that does feel like the, the number one most important thing to bring to that test team is, to, is someone who can put some confidence into them to take the game on. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago Ben Stokes hitting 17 sixes in an innings and so on. If he's going to captain in that kind of style, then having someone who will coach in a, in a way that works alongside that seems to make some sense. Yeah, we talk about, like, leadership duos, don't we? Like, what's a good combination? It feels like Stokes and McCullum are, are a match made in heaven on that front. And you're right about the hesitancy and the conservatism of English Test cricket in recent times. And what they kind of need, like, you know, I think with... A cricket coach, we know what it shouldn't be. Like in the modern mm. terms, we, we know it shouldn't be, or we think it shouldn't be from the outside looking in, someone who's, I don't know, fussing over someone's batting technique necessarily. Like I love the way that Andrew McDonald explained it to Jared Waitley on his radio show a couple of weeks ago, that he provides the players with the information to help them make the right decision, right? Like he sees his role as a conduit more than, you know, revving up the troops before, you know, battle, to use a hackneyed you know, war analogy. Like, he, he doesn't see it to be... Pointing at the picture of Albert Jacker on the wall of the yeah. dressing room. Albert, oh, Albert Jacker, oh, he stabbed this many Turks. You should think about that when you're out there trying to make runs for Australia. You're like, why? What? Yeah. And often those tropes have been drawn down on by Australian teams before. Probably not just Australian teams, but they, they've made a bigger point of it. But, you know, McDonald's a different type of coach. Yeah. He, he's more about allowing them to play, I guess, in a more modern way, like not feeling as though they need to rev themselves up into a frenzy every time they run out there. And I suspect McCullum will be the same. Even though he's an aggressive character, well, he was an aggressive character, mm. as a player, he's always struck me as an empathetic character as well. And so they could have gone to Langer. They could have gone to, as what Daniel Norcross described, the Malcolm Tucker School of Coaching, and just go in there and, and, um, and you know, not too dissimilar to mm. what we described before. Or they can go for someone who can help nurture this weak England team 
with some stars in it, but taken as a whole, weak England team with dreadful results mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. What have they won? One of their last twenty test matches, or whatever it, whatever that horrible yep. stat was after the West Indies series. So you might be on a hiding to nothing, but I think you'll have a fair bit of latitude. Like my sense is that they've given him a four year deal with a view to him being coach for four years. They're not giving him a four year deal with a view to you know sacking him after two. And you never expect to sack someone after two, but sometimes those contracts are not worth the paper they're written on. It just feels like Key's like no no no. I'm going to do this job for a decent stretch of time and I'm going to take a couple of people with me and Brendan McCullum is one of those and we're going to go on the journey and we're going to see where we end up a la what happened with Andy Flower back from 2009 when he was um, he was inheriting a team that was thoroughly broken in the Caribbean so there are some similarities there. Then on the one day side of the ledger they've gone with Matthew Mott Now that's, that, that's a fascinating appointment to me on a number of levels. Well one he, he's come out of the Australian system the Australian women's system he's not of the England breed at all really is he he has played a lot of cricket over here and did do some coaching over here but he's not sort of from the conveyor belt he's not particularly high profile either despite being you know such a successful coach with Australia I don't think that he's like a household name in men's cricket Uh, and the fact that he's now taking on the best white ball team we've seen in the last five or six years that's a plum gig it's a great job to get especially leading up to a World Cup defence in about 18 months from now I'm really looking forward to this the man they call Motti, Matthew Mott, <laughs> yes. This one is interesting uh, because he's never treated the Australian women's job like a stepping stone mm. job. That's mm. not been the way he's approached it. He's He's been absolutely committed to that job. He's stayed in it for seven years, as you say. So you can understand as per the Marilyn Monroe film set up, you know, after seven years, maybe you look to do something else. Uh, you want to challenge yourself with something else. He's built that Australian women's team into an absolute juggernaut. And, you know, in some ways, fair play to him because he could have looked at them, looked at the, the ICC tournaments they've got coming up in the next couple of years and thought he can just continue to burnish his reputation as a coach by nailing an, uh, an, the next couple of um, trophies with the Australian women's team and they'd be absolutely odds on to do that. And instead of doing that, he's decided to give that up and go and try to do something else. So yes, he's taking over a very good team, but he's also taking over a a very good team that's been a very good team for a long period of time and some of its uh, the players that it's built that on are getting on and they're no guarantee to be as good a team as they are in another year or two you know that's they 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 will mm. need transition management they will have in another era to to come into so i think it'll be a more challenging job than the one that he's the, than the way his job has now become his job with the australian women's team was challenging but he's been good enough at it and had good enough players at his disposal that he's been able to turn it into what must be at the moment a pretty easy job. He's got things running so smoothly and he's choosing to give that up rather than enjoy the fruits of that to go and, and, and try to do something important somewhere else. So, look, I think as an appointment at works, he's a low-key kind of manager of a, of a team more than a, you know, in their hands-on coach. He's about finding the players with the talent and letting them express themselves. His working relationship with Meg Lanning was outstanding in terms of you know, her being the star of Australia's team, but but him developing a, a real one-two relationship with her. The really interesting bit is that he's got a four-year deal as well, and so that means, presuming that everything plays out as it's 
supposed to, Owen Morgan won't be um, coaching that side in the next four years. That's a good point. I hadn't considered it uh, in that way, but you're right. It'll mean that Morgan will need another transition when he stops playing, which, you know, you'd think he's likely to be in about at the, end of the 50 over World Cup. Well, who knows, mate, really? Who knows when Morgan will give it up, given how important... I don't think he'll give it up, but he's not He's not good enough to be in that team anymore. Like, yeah. It's almost comical at this point that he's, he's still commanding a spot when, you know, if he's captaining, he should be captaining from the bench, you know, as, as 12th man. That's why I liked my captain-coach uh, solution a couple of weeks ago. They yeah. could have saved themselves some money. Just with my, on Australia, as you were explaining it there, I was thinking to myself that, like, let's remember where Australia were in 2017. The, the mm. pack had kind of caught up. They'd lost to England in the group stage. They lost to India in the semi-final. Yes, Australia had structural advantages through the Women's Big Bash League and the, the MOU, which was going to underpin and, and turbocharge salaries in the five years after that and an existing brilliant WNCL structure as well, which had served them well for a long stretch of time. But there was no guarantee that they were going to be like the dominant force they have been since 2017, and, and Mott can take a lot of credit for that, for getting that dressing room in the right place to take the next step and not be complacent. I think complacent was a word that came out a lot after that tournament. Now, that, you know, they are borderline unbeatable without overplaying that point. I mean, they've lost what? I don't know, is it one one-day international in the five years since that 2017 World Cup? Something absurd like that. And they yep. won the, the 2018... Right. They won the 2018 T20 World Cup. They won at home in 2020. And yeah, sure, there's a they can defend that title in South Africa in February, March next year. But this feels like a, a, a perfect time for him to leave and let that next generation of Australian players have another voice and the established stars to have another voice too. It's like he's he's gifting them the chance to, to grow under a new coach, which sometimes you need to do. It's going to be fun to watch. Just a side point, it was put to me yesterday by a colleague. I wonder how he'll deal with the Joe Clark stuff himself. Joe Clark's more likely to play in the England white ball team first, mm-hmm. owing to the fact that his T20 numbers have been you know, quite outstanding for the Melbourne Stars and he's going to have that shop window with the 100 being the top price pick at the Welsh Fire. And, you know, you think that his cricket case will will swell and that will be mitigated by what we talked about last week, I'd expect. But Matt Mott's been in a dressing room with women for seven years. I, I'm not saying that you need to be in a dressing room with women to understand women or anything like that, but his perspective on that will be, I expect more developed than, than others just by virtue of the fact that he's worked in an intense professional environment with women for in cricket for such a significant part of his career. I, I hope that is the case. I hope he has strong views on it and makes them known instead of just rolling with it because that's not the case with Rob Key. I mean, his, his commentary on it a week or two ago was... It, it was sort of understandably poor in a way, but it, it was it was very uninformed, you know. And I don't think it's surprising because you take a guy who's a, a lifelong cricketer straight into cricket media, very blokey worlds on both sides of that, and there's often no opportunity or, or expectation of you to to actually learn about these things, to actually understand the complexities of an issue like that, and so you can have this uh, fairly basic view of it that doesn't actually uh, take into account everything that needs to be taken into account you know so I, I wasn't surprised to see Rob Key saying oh you know I will probably be fine and and you know you can't punish people forever and all that sort of stuff because he obviously doesn't know much about it and and he should he has the opportunity to to do it I hope that um, that opportunity is put in front of him and that, and that people make the suggestion strongly that he should learn about it more and, and that that's it, it comes down to much more than just being a cricket question but 
he, yeah. he he will need people around him to push him to confront that rather than just uh, accept that oh, it's okay, you know, Keezy is one of the lads, um, let it all roll. Yeah, I, I think it'll be the former. That is, I think he will be inclined to, to learn more about this. He's a smart guy, Rob. He's an empathetic guy. He's a guy who also, and this shouldn't be a factor, but is a factor, definitely understands women's cricket, daughter in the system, commentated on, you know, more women's cricket than any of us. He's been a feature of women's coverage for, I don't know how long now, five, six, seven years on television. So it won't be a factor of him not having the inclination. I think it'll probably be more along the lines of he wasn't forced to think about this specific case too deeply before being asked to comment on it publicly. So, you know, Mm -hmm. to that end, I think that there is clearly a more sophisticated conversation going on about this now than there might have been a month ago and he'll be reading that he'll be taking that all in and I think that'll help to inform the decisions that the selection panel make down the track and by the way that selection panel isn't just him that the ECB popped out a quick note before noting that in addition to Key there's Brendan McCullum, Ben Stokes, Mo Bobat who's the performance director, James Taylor who's the head scout and David Court who's the player ID lead so like there are a big group of people there and that's a good thing I reckon especially when addressing this Clark problem. You probably want a significant group there who can think about it more broadly than, you know, kind of that reductive, well, he's done his time, can't be punished forever, that might be where you instinctively go if you're a sympathetic person before learning more about what's actually mm-hmm. happened and, and taking it in more generally. And maybe we've contributed to that last week, I'm not sure, but that's where I feel it's all moving. And also, look, <laughs> again, this isn't going to be her job, but with Tom Harrison moving on, uh, Claire Connors, the new chief executive of the ECB, at least temporarily. She's been appointed as the interim boss from the end of June, I think I'm right in saying, with Harrison now. got right. uh, He's got a, a small window when he's going to be, be saying goodbye to the organisation after seven years as the chief executive. And, yeah, again, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't profess he to know. Well, he needs a couple of months to move all his money from his office <laughs> to his car. So. I, I don't profess to know Claire's position on this, and I suppose she'd be happy to talk about it in the fullness of time. But, you know... We both know Claire well enough to know that she'll have a sophisticated understanding of this. She won't be directing staff that work for her in an ill-considered manner. So I think you throw all those ingredients in and you stir it together and, and you realise that even though it might have felt inevitable a couple of weeks that Clark was going to be playing for England soon, maybe not quite so. But we'll see on that. Uh, speaking of uh, Tom Harrison's departure, I mean, everyone's had their say by now. We may as well do so as well. From my perspective... I feel as though you're allowed to have a balanced critique of administrators when they finish. I know a lot of people out there on the internet are celebrating this because England's men's test team aren't going so well at the moment and they're Mm. pointing the finger at everybody and Harrison's part of that and he must go and, you know, boohoo to the hundred and, you know, like I I get that. There, there, There is a corner of the internet that is going to be vociferous in their abuse, frankly, of administrators like Harrison and there are some who will never get over the bonuses and, you know, that does jar given how many redundancies were overseen at ECB Towers through the pandemic. But of course there is there is the um, the other column as well about the biggest strategic piece with inspiring generations, the surge in women's cricket investment, which clearly wasn't there before him taking over. Um, what's happened with All Stars and Dynamos cricket, which again is, is a program that's been rolled out under his watch and is working quite well. The game ticking over during the pandemic, um, whether you like it or hate it, the hundred is off the ground. So obviously there is a strong critique of Harrison and I'm not trying to underplay that, but I think when someone comes to the end of a long tenure, it's worth sort of 
acknowledging that it's not all good, it's not all bad, and, and that's okay. It, it's a it's a tough gig, and he's leaving with his reputation probably diminished, and I think that's probably fair. But it's not as though he should be hanging his head in shame as he walks out the doors either. You know what I mean? It's it's a curious one. This sort of thing. It's, I mean. There's not a lot of love for sporting administrators in general. You know, it's, it's rare that there's a, a celebrated sporting administrator who would be carried on the <laughs> shoulders of the uh, the followers of the game through the streets. Occasionally it happens, I suppose. But it's a little like revelling in the departure of awful politicians in that there'll be another one any minute. You know, there'll be someone that you didn't even know that you should loathe yet <laughs> who will be taking the position next to be loathed in, in their stead. Um, and, and, you know... They will be loathsome, and a lot of its sporting administrators are in their ways, uh, in the ways that they fail. You know, there may be some successes in there, but it's the ways that they fail as well. I, I will have no no moment of uh, of sadness for Tom Harrison leaving his job, but you know, the likelihood that he'll be replaced with a similar person, you know, or even if somebody decent holds the job for a couple of years, uh, there'll be a similar person in the wings, you know, coming along to lead another regime pretty soon. I'll remember him as as somebody who was empty, you know, an empty suit. He stopped doing things. He, he was always in a position of pause. And I think just look at the way that the ECB handled Yorkshire and the, the racism problem up there, where it was all about paralysis. It was all about doing nothing and pointing at process. You know, let's put that in inverted commas, processes, saying, oh, well, the process says this and the process says that, and then ultimately doing fuck all about it until you're absolutely forced to take the next step and then doing nothing again until you're forced to take the step after that. And the fact that, I mean, there's still extant stuff with Yorkshire about uh, investigations and, uh, and and consequences and all of the rest of it, like the way the ECB dragged their feet on that and then, you know, Harrison standing up at the committees and saying that they weren't dragging their feet on it. There's There was so little ability or willingness to actually be straightforward and tell the unvarnished truth about anything. It was always spin, just as it was spin. You know, the bonuses you mentioned, sure, you can find a rationalisation for it, that they were in the system already and, and they were on the way already and blah, blah, blah. But then guess what? A global pandemic happened and you had to sack half your workforce. Okay, maybe at that point, read the room and, and don't try to take a couple of million quid out of the organisation. Like there was <laughs> That sums up his complete lack of judgement when things actually mattered to me. Yeah, I think the bit you went through there, where he really lowered his colours was the inertia on what was going on at Yorkshire. I think that that's the bit you can like absolutely point out, I reckon, and say that that's where he's... You know, where his, you know, you describe empty suit, kind of sterile image that he presented. He needed mm-hmm. to be big then. He needed to get bigger, not smaller. And he got smaller at that moment. And that was to the detriment of the yep. game more generally, not just the organisation. That'll have long lasting And be a effects. human being. You know, be, yeah. act like a human being at that point. I think, like, you, you, what you want to see in people who are running things when there are problems is that they are human and that they will connect with you on a human level and that you can face a problem together as people, you know, rather than becoming... A, a sort of corporate tagline, you know, a, yeah. a, a, an affirmation statement, you know, a, a focus group slogan, you know. I mean, he was a walking slogan through that period and, and that's just antithetical to what the game needed. Yeah, and look, it's obviously an incredibly tough gig. It's an it's a unforgiving job being the boss of England cricket, no doubt. So there, there are some bits of this that were outside of his control. I mean, I, I, I would probably count even the men's performance under that bracket, like, you know, 
He's a yeah. man of television. He's a man of, of the corporate world. Sure, he played county cricket, but his professional life as an administrator, as an executive, has not been about the 22 yards in the middle, right? So on that front, I'm not sure you can lay enormous amounts of blame. Maybe you can, maybe I'm being too, um, I'm being too soft here. But I, I think the, the, the off-field stuff is where I used, to, I used to squirm a little bit. And yeah, it's an unenviable position with England cricket in a tough spot right now. And, and the revenue just not being there and any number of other problems. I suppose the revenue was there from the TV deal, which he did oversee back in 2017, which funds the game. And that is something he can point to as one of his legacy items. I mentioned Claire Connors there on an interim basis from June. Then they're going through the usual global search, Jeff. I know you love a good global search. Um, love for, a global search. For, for yeah, really CEO. look around the world. Let's look around the world. Let's go to every corner of the <laughs> well, globe. Globes well, don't have corners. They're the spherical. <laughs> but let's go there. Well, I mean, it kind of reinforces what a blue it was. It's not just getting Wazim Khan on ice, right? Like, should have said to Wazim Khan six months ago, mate, don't take another fucking job, mate. Just don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> just don't take another we'll job. Put you on a retainer. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll make you a good job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can be the you know you can be the minister without portfolio in our cabinet, so to speak, for uh-huh. just a few months, and you can be the Alan Tudge of. So to, <laughs> excuse the ins, <laughs> please ins, don't please don't be Alan, that Alan. Yeah, was him. Please don't be that Alan. Tudge. Don't be that Alan Tudge, but the minister without portfolio component of, of his life at the moment, getting paid a healthy salary to do fuck all, but they've missed that opportunity and now Bosium's gone to work for the ICC. I don't know what the ECB will do here. They've got some good options. If they can coerce Richard Gould back from football, it wouldn't be a bad shout. I mean, I, you know, full disclosure, I like Richard a lot and had mm-hmm. a bit to do with him at Surrey, but, uh, you know, he's a high-quality operator who ran an excellent county career club there at the Oval, so he might be someone who's been inside the game, now outside the game they could look to, but yeah, there's probably no point doing the field on that like a horse race quite yet. There'll be plenty of time over the next six weeks as the names get floated and all the rest. Uh, back to cricket in England ever so briefly they actually did name their test squad today mm-hmm. so the interesting names here are Harry Brook from Yorkshire who's just dominating he's made uh, I want to say 400 so far in the season averaging like 160 or something so fair enough he's in the system we all knew he was going to play test cricket eventually it looks like he's going to play mm-hmm. test cricket very soon and Matty Potts from Durham who I don't think anyone was talking about two and a half months ago or whenever the season started. He's taken 35 wickets at nothing, took seven for last week. Fair enough. I mean, if you dominate the county championship for the first block, you should get the chance to be in the squad. And doubly so when they've been beset by injury. Uh, Sakib Mahmood out for the whole season, devastating that he's not going to get to play uh, this summer. Um, Matt Fisher, who played in the Caribbean, is also out uh, for the whole summer, both with stress fractures to the back. So they do need to look a bit deeper. Anderson and Broad are back as expected, but they've retained Leach. They've not gone to Parkinson. Parkinson's not even in the squad, oh. uh, which is very conservative. Lees deserves to stay at the top on the basis of what he's been doing for Durham. Uh, they've retained Overton. They haven't gone back to Robinson as yet. I, I expect that's just a fitness matter. He was back in the speed dealers bowling offies the other day in the most recent round of the county championship. So in all probability, it'll be Anderson, Broad and Potts, I suppose, to start. And maybe Overton could get in as the fourth seamer if they go that way and they don't go with Jack Leach at Lords. So, and then in the top order, I mentioned Alex Lees, but Harry Brook expected to get an opportunity. Root's going to bat four, Stokes is going to bat six, Bairstow's going to bat five, and Ben Folks keeps the clubs despite... Um, stinking the joint out with the bat uh, in the Caribbean, but at long last he'll get a test match in England. Mm, yeah, what's the go with Robinson and the fitness thing? Like 
they're so vague about it. They're like, oh, yeah, fitness, mumble, mumble, murmur, murmur, fitness. How is he still not fit? Is he like sneaking down to the back shed and then getting Uber Eats delivered to the shed and <laughs> eating like three pizzas down there in the dark by torchlight like, and smoking a pack of darts? Like, what's, I think how, how's a professional player not fit? How yeah. have they not got him fit when they said he wasn't fit in January uh, and it's now May and you would think – you got to be kind of fit enough to play test cricket, even if you're a bit below par. How have they not got him fit? It's not Scott Cummings having a pie and a cigarette in the car park yeah. before playing first, and it's not quite at those levels. And I've also read that he's very aware of the perception that's out there about yes. him at the moment, and has been um, tightening his belt perhaps in more ways than one. But this feels like less genuine cricket injuries at the moment. I think it was back soreness that was one and shoulder soreness was another. He did take Pfeiffer on his return to county cricket a fortnight ago, but as I say, it's um it's been hard graft at Sussex. They've been they've been doing a lot of fielding. So um yeah, not match fit, I suppose is the best way to describe it. And um yeah, well I'm sure we'll see him at some point through the summer. But yeah, that, that test series is not far away now. It begins uh well when we're releasing this podcast, it'll be a fortnight away. It's that Uber bank holiday with uh, the not a bank holiday for Uber, but a very long bank holiday uh, weekend um, uh, for the Queen's Jubilee. So it's Thursday, Friday, a public holidays, and the Saturday, Sunday for that first test at Lords. So very much looking forward to that. All right, shall we play a little game before we do that? Let's do it. It's called. Mm, nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge uh, That's the game We play it with people On the internet uh, They support the show People fund this show By sending us contributions And uh, those contributions Are not a normal number They're a specific number Because it's a cricket number But we don't know What the number means We have to work out What it means That's the game Hugo Connery is playing the game He sent us through Some time ago Because we've been Going back and forth Trying to work out This number with Hugo He sent us $7.27 Seven two seven, and that meant something to do with cricket. What was it? Yeah, so he added that it has two parts, so four forty three, and it's two eighty four. He adds one is a single whole number. Four players are involved from one team in one all too forgotten test match where I attended all five days. It was hot. The players span eras and are significant players for their country. There's a first in there too. Bloody hell! Good luck with that. Yes, yes. That's what. Well, that's why I had a bit of correspondence with Hugo because the the thing of putting two numbers together, I was like, "Oh, this is tough." And then when I was uh, writing back and forth with him, he was like, "You know what? I don't actually remember." <laughs> and he had to go and solve his own number first <laughs> before coming back to give me clues. So bless you, Hugo. Um, we 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 got somewhere in the end, and let me uh, let me lay it out as follows, Adam. We are talking about. I'm pr- very confident. A time when South Africa visited Adelaide, where I currently am right now, in 1997, uh, a test match that was hot, it was slow, it was dry, it lasted the full five days, and so it ticks all of those boxes. Uh, in terms of being a first, it was a match when uh, Stuart, SCG McGill, was on debut. So there's mm-hmm. a first that I can throw in there too. And in terms of significant players, here's a little thing. In the first innings, Shane Warne takes a catch off Stuart McGill, the two leg spinners combining. Uh, Now, one of the numbers we were given by Hugo is 443. When that catch was taken off Lance Klusner, South Africa were nine for 443. Mmm, okay, that gets us a start. Pat Simcox makes a 50 batting at number 11. South Africa make 517. The other number we were given was 284. The run rate for Australia in the second innings of this test match was 2.84 runs per over. And that is an innings in which Mark Taylor carries his bat 
makes 169 mm-hmm. plays. That's almost nine hours in this remarkable innings. And then despite South Africa still having time to set a big run chase of 361, the fourth significant performer in this match is Mark War, who you would remember this, I'm sure, in, in ball-by-ball detail, Adam, uh, with Mark War making an unbeaten 115 in the fourth innings to ensure a draw. And that means that Australia win the series 1-0. They hold on to that draw. They don't concede a defeat that would see South Africa tie up the series. So, the spanning of the eras, you've got well, you've got Warren Brent, and then McGill coming into the fold with the, the two leg spinners who are, who are sort of part of the same eras but playing together for the first time. You've even got in the third innings, I believe, Stuart McGill taking a catch off Shane Warne as well to complement the catch that Warne took off McGill in the first innings. And as far as the spanning of eras goes, uh, within a year of this match, Mark Taylor was finished. Uh, and the time of the wars was upon us. And so there's a little, it's almost a handover there. Taylor, the big hundred in the second innings. Mark Ward, the big hundred in the fourth innings. Uh, and away you go into the era of the wars. My memories of that test match, well, I've got a couple. First of all, I was working at the Australian Open. I think that was my first summer working at the Australian Open. Uh, it must have been. Uh, where I was selling drinks and ice creams. And the stall I had each day was, um, I think they call it the garden, garden centre, no, not garden centre, garden circle, something like that. In other words, where everyone gathers to watch on the big screen, out mm-hmm. in the back courts. And we were right near the Heineken bar to our right, which was playing the cricket. So I had this bloke, this poor bloke I was working with, who must have been doing a lot more work than, than me because I kept slipping off to watch Mark Taylor bat and carry his bat. And I was very invested in Taylor getting all the way through to the end. <laughs> also, um, that in the fourth innings, you referred to Wars 115 batting all day. He was extremely fortunate not to be given out hit wicket. He, I can't remember where the ball goes to. Oh, Short ball, yeah. deflects into the onside, I'm pretty sure, of Sean Pollock. And Wars swings his bat around and knocks his stumps over. And Bill Laurie mm. on commentary is fairly adamant that Wall should be given out hit wicket, but he survives. They mm. go upstairs. I think they go upstairs to the third umpire. Yeah, they do. They adjudicate that he gives the bat a funny little casual swing, but they adjudicate that he's done it after he's finished playing his shot. That's uh, right. When he's sort of recomposing him himself for the next ball, like resetting his his um, his. Yeah, so, he, so he's not setting off for a run and he's not taking evasive action. It's like, yeah, it was... And he's it finished was like playing was, the shot. Yeah, it was, it was clumsy rather than part of the shot, which, you know, you can definitely interpret that the alternative way. I reckon that's just after tea. Wall gets out there, South Africa probably win the test match. And I also remember that Pat Simcox half-century. I think they put on... I think they put on about 120 for the last wicket. And Simcox, uh, yeah, he was a, an entertaining player. I think there's some stat about him being the first South African number 11 to reach 50, something like that. He might have got a bit more than there, 50. There haven't did he get, been did a he lot of 50s. Did he get up to 90-odd? Was it just 50 or was it closer to 90? No, it was 50-52, I think, okay. in the end. Okay. Um, so it wasn't the highest score from number 11 at that point, but it's probably it's in the top. 15. There have been about 15 half centuries from number 11. Nice one. Thank you, Hugo Connery, and thanks for helping Jeff solve it. If you want to be part of what we do, uh, well, story time's back this week, and uh, and I promise you it's going to be a big one because we didn't do it last week. Our diaries got in the way when I was in Dubai and Jeff was at uh, the family wedding, but this week we have got loads to get through, so tune in uh, over the weekend. I say tune in. It'll be in your feet. Just listen to it at your leisure. We've also got, Adam, uh, I think we've also got my, I'm going to say my favourite number my favorite answer for a very long time oh, wow. you don't know what it is but i okay. know what it is 
I've got some good ones too, but I'm not going to build them up the way you have there. So mm. I look forward to that uh, whenever we record story time later in the week. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash the final word. If you are already a member of our Patreon community and you haven't been able to get onto Discord, send me a message on Patreon and I'll send you the link. There have been a few people who've been in our Patreon inbox unsure about how you link the two things together. There is a way of doing it, um, but there's a, a backdoor key, which Jeff and I have, uh, which we can send you um, easily, and that gets you into the nicest corner of the internet, as uh, as we keep saying. I was slightly bereft when I was in Dubai and unable to access Patreon due to the restrictive uh, internet requirements in, in the UAE that I couldn't uh, sit on there and, and jibber-jabber with everybody all day. But um, I'm back on there now, and um, yes, if you want to be part of that, patreon.com forward slash the final word, and send in your nerd pledge. He's back in pog form, Adam, on Discord. All right, that has been Nerd Pledge. That's been the first half of the first part. Let's go to Adam's interview with Gabor Torok. Hi, I'm Ebony rainford Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins, and with me for a conversation today, we have international cricketer, Gabor Torok uh, there in Budapest uh, who listens to the show and has been in touch with me recently to tell me his wonderful story and I thought it's one that we simply have to share. Thanks for coming on and having a chat with me, first of all. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, international cricketer, is that a tag that you have gotten used to over the last week since making your debut for Hungary at age 40? No, it's like a dream where I think I'm just going to wake up and it's going to become a nightmare that it never happened. So a few <laughs> years ago, I didn't think it would happen. So it's just a fantastic experience to to be able to debut for my country officially in the T20 International. So it's, a, it's a, my childhood dream has come alive. So so let's go back through this. You, you are a Hungarian-Australian in that you spent time in both countries as a young fellow before moving back to Hungary. Yes, uh, yes. Perhaps let's go through that. So you, you, the backstory of how you ended up being in Australia and, and what your childhood was like and where you grew up specifically. Yes, I was born in Hungary and at the age of... Uh, Seven. My father decided that uh, he's had enough of communism and he'd like to go to the West. So we went to Austria, first of all, and then we applied to go to Australia. Uh, our family got accepted and uh, we traveled to Australia as refugees in 1989, March of 1989. So I was seven and a half years old when I arrived in Australia. And uh, whilst flicking through the TV channels as a child, I came across uh, cricket. It was a 1989 Ashes series. And I I just sort of instantly fell in love with the sport for some unknown reason. I was trying to dissect the rules. I could see that there were lots of points on one side and few points on the other side. And I, in an autodidactic way, I just sort of started to find out what cricket was about. But I, it took a long time for me to understand the LBW rule, uh, why sometimes they shout and there's a point and sometimes they didn't. They shout and there's no point. So it, <laughs> that took me a while to figure it out. Obviously, my parents uh, wouldn't have understood it either. And, um, yeah, I went to, to Adelaide, uh, primary, Norwood Primary School in Adelaide, and uh, we obviously played a lot of cricket in the backyard, lunch or recess breaks during the summer. And um, I started playing for the school team, Norwood Primary School team. And uh, by the end of year seven or in year seven, I became the captain of the Norwood Primary School cricket team. I was wicket keeper as well. So I just loved that cricket was something I have loved ever since. So, so I assume you're learning the game and, and the 
eccentricities of cricket whilst at the same time learning the language if you were coming over in those circumstances. So yeah, uh, yeah, you have much English at all. Um, I suppose cricket might have helped contribute to your understanding of English perhaps? Yeah, definitely. The two were simultaneous. So my uh, English teachers were Richie Benno, uh, Bill Laurie, Tony Gregg. Ian Chapel, basically, because I got a lot of that vocabulary for them. Obviously, I, I went to an ESL school in the first year, third three primary school, and uh, all of a sudden, my parents were just uh, amazed. And in a few months' time, uh, I was talking English to my brother, who's also a very good cricketer, by the way. Uh, they just uh, couldn't believe what was going on. In a few months' time, we were speaking fluent English and uh, playing this sport that they had never heard of in the backyard, taking the tennis ball uh, to primary school and uh, hitting it there and... Uh, yeah, it was just, just a wonderful time. So a formative stretch of your young life in Australia. Then you moved back to Hungary. Did you keep playing the game or any relationship with cricket through your late teens and 20s? It was a difficult time. In 1995, my father decided that uh, Hungary was a democracy once again, so it's time to come back. He had homesickness and I was still only 14. And um, so I came home with the family, or came back to Hungary with the family, I should say. And it was a difficult time because it was before the internet and before satellite TV, really. So, uh, for example, I missed out on the Adelaide Crows uh, two first premierships in 97 and 98. I didn't even know about that because there was no internet or anything. So that was that was interesting. And uh, my first uh, taste of uh, cricket in Europe was uh, we could actually catch the Sky Channels, but they were decoded. So I was uh, listening to the 1999 World Cup on a decoded screen and listening to the commentary. But I couldn't uh, actually get to play cricket until uh, 2007. Up until then, I was, just, I was just bowling the tennis ball against the wall because there was no cricket in Hungary. So, yeah, the internet helped a lot, uh, obviously. And um, in 2007... Uh, there were some uh, pubs in Budapest. Uh, I attended the 2007 World Cup cricket match uh, coverage uh, in the pubs a few times, and uh, we met some. I met some other experts, and uh, we started talking. And why are we playing cricket here in Hungary? What's what's the hurdle? And uh, one thing led to another. And in 2007, we started Hungarian cricket league. There was uh, an English. Uh, guy in a city called Sikashvahirvar. He started teaching uh, uh, cricket at, at the school there and the Grieve. And um, yeah, in 2007, we already had a cricket league in Hungary with uh, mainly experts, but a lot of uh, Hungarians as well. Yeah, right. So all the way through that stretch of time between so what's 1995 and, and 2007, it's a, pretty long, it's a pretty long time to keep the fire burning for cricket. I mean, a game that you, as you say, unable to follow particularly closely in those early years. And I'd imagine there would have been some hurt there too, knowing that this was a big part of your childhood and then not there anymore. I mean, you must have almost grieved for cricket. Yeah, I, I, it really was uh, hurting. Uh, I contemplated going back to Australia. I actually got accepted to the university uh, in Adelaide, but uh, it didn't work uh, out. I, I uh, attended the uh, university here in Hungary. I always had a burning desire for cricket. Before my university exams, I uh, always had these cricket posters on the wall and I was holding my primary school cricket bag because I took that with me back to Hungary before exams. It was sort of a ritual and... Uh, yeah, cricket was always uh, in my mind that well, I would love to one day play it, not just uh, uh, follow it across the internet. So uh, 2007 was like a dream come true to play cricket. Yeah, first in the parks and then uh, we, we started playing football pitches 
so that was that was uh, that was a great year, 2007. Yeah, it's a story that we corresponded after the Dan Weston interview a, a couple of months ago, when when reflecting on the origin of uh, European cricket league and European cricket network and his own German story. And I can see some parallels in in what you're describing there. That there was this latent base of people who loved the game, having grown up in traditional air quotes cricket countries. And I suppose Asian diaspora would have added to that as well uh, and suddenly there's this, this this desire and want and the communication network to be talking to these people regularly but lacking the the organizational structure and the facilities in those early days yeah, definitely but uh, this burning desire for for cricket was really there and those were the wonder years everyone was just happy to play uh, cricket and uh, obviously since then there's been a couple of highs and lows uh, we would really like to get more Hungarians uh, playing the game, but we're we're in a pretty good uh, we're in a pretty good state right now. Uh, uh, we uh, have a dedicated cricket ground to English uh, gentlemen, Mike Glover and Mark Bonus. Uh, basically, built a dedicated uh, cricket ground in Sudliget, uh, a city or a town village uh, near Budapest. That happened in 2011, and in 2012. We got accepted as an ICC affiliate member. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we actually started playing national team unofficial matches from 2007 onwards, but now we had our own dedicated cricket ground, uh, two leagues, first and second division, and uh, more and more players coming through. So cricket has risen steadily across the years, and uh, a big watershed moment came uh, in 2019, from 2019, January onwards, the ICC decided that all international matches between affiliate or ICC members uh, will get a T20 international status. Unfortunately, our ground is not adhering to ICC standards as of yet. So basically, our matches, uh, when we tour overseas or to another country, those matches are officially T20 internationals. So that's that's a fantastic thing to eventually. You're hearing this more and more that that watershed moment is 2019 when the ICC say that, that status is effectively no longer a thing. I mean, they're liberating status, but really what they're doing is pulling the wall down and, and they're no longer saying, you know, certain games get it and so certain games don't in the T20 form of the game. We have seen that a lot in women's cricket too. It, for whatever reason, that was the, the turning point for a lot of associate nations. We're like, well, actually, if these are going to be defined as international games, then then we're in for a penny and for a pound. And, and so it's been for Hungary. So, and your own story, I mean, as you've explained it to me, this was kind of a bit of a COVID story in there as well. I mean, you'd finished your PhD, you had the capacity to, to invest a bit more in, in, in cricket beyond the club game. And then the status change is made and then you kind of realise, well, you're reaching a point in your life when it's now or never. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I was playing, but I wasn't uh, playing with the national team for a few years. I had a, a court and ball that broke my hand in 2016. So it looked as though it would just peter out my uh, cricketing career. But uh, nearing 40, uh, I just realised that, well, it's basically now or never. I've got nothing to lose. I got in touch with uh, our team manager, Sufian, and our captain, Mark Ahuja, and uh, they've always been open to natives uh, coming into the national team. So it's not just about picking the best 11 players who are eligible for Hungary. It's always a bit of a push for natives. And because uh, maybe my cricketing uh, uh, talent uh, or knowledge wasn't, wouldn't have uh, been enough uh, for me to be able to train with the squad, uh, they were open to having me back. And uh, I started training with the national team. Uh, COVID came and I put an emphasis on my fitness 
uh, listening to all these uh, motivating songs while running and, you know, one last roll of the dice and things like that. So <laughs> 40, 40 is the new 30 and all those uh, kinds of uh, uh, one-liners. So, yeah, I just, I just did my best. And uh, one thing led to another. And uh, this multi-tournament uh, came about uh, between uh, May the 10th and May the 16th. And... Uh, there were a couple of injuries, unfortunately, a couple of unavailabilities. So I got my I got my opportunity belatedly. It just seems like total fairy tale stuff. Everything you've described from your childhood through to missing the game, coming back to it over a decade later, being part of the the first cohort of Hungarians to play in Hungary in the parks and on football pitches and whatever else, breaking your hand. Then status comes along. You're in your late thirties. You're in the squad, and then you're in the team. And yeah, tell us yeah. about finding out that you were going to be playing that game last week against Bulgaria. Tell us when you got the tap on the shoulder or the phone call saying, you know, you're in. Yeah, uh, first of all, I, I really couldn't believe it until I actually booked the tickets. We travelled with the team and uh, I knew I was a reserve and um, that I only might not even get a game. But I said, no worries, I'm going along. If anything happens, I'll, I'll be there for the team. And uh, yeah, the captain, uh, Mark... Uh, presented me my cap while be, whilst being 12th man against uh, Malta in the first match and that that already that would have fulfilled all my expectations so when I received the cap and the national shirt and the trousers that was, I got really really emotional we lost to Malta then beat Gibraltar and uh, the next day we had a match against Bulgaria and uh, I was sort of calculating in my mind that uh, if it comes to the pointy end of the tournament, then uh, the best 11 needs to be on the park. So it was basically a situation, if I don't play against Bulgaria, I might not get a game. So I was, really, I was uh, hoping for it in secret. And then, um, yeah, after after a discussion, uh, the captain said, uh, there's one change for today, Gab was coming in. And that was like, wow, it really was something like in the movies. It was just, yeah, once again, just using that cliche, a dream, dream come true. So uh, yeah, I got my got, got into the starting eleven. And, and talk about yeah, and talk about like I guess the getting given the cap and, and just little things like that that I'm sure are a part of um, you know all international cricket teams now. There's a ceremony of sorts and how you felt when um, being given the chance to play after this journey that goes back to all the way to the '89 Ashes, really. Yeah, there's a, I'd just uh, like to point out that there's a very good uh, bonding between the Hungarian team. So really a couple of the, a lot of the team members have been core members since uh, for, for more than a decade, like the Huju brothers and the Delda brothers uh, originally came to Hungary from Afghanistan. So there's a real core in the Hungarian team. And I, I felt great just touring with, with the boys, learning a lot uh, about cricket and um bonding during the evenings and stuff so yeah I, I i was happy respective of getting my cap but when i actually were in the team huddle i got my cap and i could see that uh boys were happy to uh have me with them i really did feel the integral part of the squad and yeah it's uh, <laughs> a tear almost uh, came out of my eye and when we actually started batting, I didn't get the chance to bat as such, just to run a few doubles uh, in the 20th uh, over. That was, that was once again, a fantastic feeling. Sort of wore on. I was, I was nervous in the field. I was just thinking, oh, if a catch comes my way and I drop it, what's going to happen? So I was really, really nervous. But then adrenaline uh, sort of got the, got the better of me and I started focusing. And uh, 
Yeah, we scored 158 in the first innings. Well, I'm looking at the card here. I'm seeing you came in at number 10 and were didn't face a ball, none not out. Yeah. But yeah, we, you were out there for for six runs at the end with your teammate yeah. uh, Sandeep Mohandas. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so you and he were, were there for the, the final bit. You must have thought when batting first, it was unlikely that you would bat, given you were listed to come in at 10. And then not expecting to bowl and, and just go through what happened next. I mean, there's a, a chap playing for Bulgaria by the name of Aravinda Da Silva, would you believe it? World Cup player of the final in 1996. Probably not that Aravinda Da Silva. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not that Aravinda Da Silva. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and they're cruising. I mean, look, you're looking at the card here. You make yeah, 158 yeah. Um, when Aravinda is there. Um, they're 100 for two in the 12th over. They are in cruise control and the entire game turns on a run out. Talk us through it. Well, yeah, we actually did make a pretty good uh, five back with the bat to get to one five eight. We were four down in the power play, I think. So actually, for a while, I, I uh, did think I was going to get a bat, but thankfully made a, a very good comeback with the bat. Posted a pass score of one five eight. Uh, but Bulgaria were playing really nicely. They were running the twos very hard, which is something we try to learn from them in the future. And yeah, they were cruising at uh, two for one hundred, chasing one five nine. I still think that I think they had about eight overs left to get them in and uh, we, were, we were down in the fielding and uh, yeah, just the ball came to me. There was uh, that mini fumble there, which uh, which is part of the story. It's part of the reason there was a bit of hesitation between uh, the batters mm. and uh, I did collect the ball eventually and uh, I, I had to go for it because we really needed a wicket. Yeah, one time to aim at all those, uh, all those uh, cliches once again, but uh, yeah, I threw the ball as quickly as I could. With a lot of luck, uh, I hit the stumps, a clean run out, and uh, yeah, I celebrated like uh, like a bit of a tool afterwards. <laughs> looking back at the back at the video, but uh, yeah, hopefully the the fact that we really needed a wicket justified it, and um, yeah, we we broke the partnership. And uh, thanks to a beautiful bowling display by my teammates, we we managed to. Uh, managed to win by a few runs. Hopefully, the fact that we ran into a few doubles at the end also gave us a little cushion there in the last uh, mm. in the last over and some fantastic death bowling by the boys. And uh, yeah, the run out wouldn't have meant anywhere near as much if, as if we, we were lost. So that that was a great feeling. That once again, the uh, moments after the match and the, that night was was really special. I, I had the time of my life in Malta with the boys. So. Really glad to be part of it. And for those who are watching on YouTube, I'll drop that video of the run out in here. And for those who aren't, you can watch it on, on the Discord page or on social media. Or for, I'm sure we'll find a way to get that video out uh, more widely. But you absolutely did turn the game. So from 100 for three in the 12th over, they fall, uh, yeah, five runs short, uh, losing a, a stack of wickets. And yeah, they were absolutely cruising to that point. So it was a, a decisive moment in that game. You have the win. As you say, it must have been... A hell of a night for you afterwards, realising that you'd contributed to a victory for your team on international debut. What's next? I mean, I know we have some sort of abstract understanding of the European Cricket Network, European Cricket League, and we know where Hungary kind of broadly fits into all of that. But for Hungary Cricket, and for you personally, um, what happens now? Yeah, actually, we beat Romania afterwards uh, in our next group match, but uh, we didn't get the job done. We lost in the group stage against the Czech Republic and lost uh, the third, fourth place playoff to the Czech Republic as well. So kudos to them. They, they were too good for us. And were you playing in that? You didn't play in those games, did you? No, I didn't, I didn't get a go in those, uh, in those games. So we ended up uh, finishing fourth and a uh, little bit disappointed that team's done really well. Uh, we made the final of the same tournament in 2019. But uh, we've, we've got a really exciting period ahead of us. We go on to Austria on June the 4th, 5th, and uh, the big one, 
the biggest event in uh, Hungarian uh, national cricket so far as the ICC qualifier for the 2024 T20 World Cup. So there's actually a mathematical chance that if Hungary wins all its games from now on, we're going to be playing uh, against Australia and India and all those uh, big countries. <laughs> well, it's about the same chance as if, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't want to name any countries, but maybe Liechtenstein or, uh, or the Faroe Islands uh, getting to the Football World Cup. But you never know, it can happen. But actually, yeah, we have got a great group of players and a uh, great uh, uh, management so we'll be playing um, uh, in the qualifiers from the end of June to uh, July the 4th so if we can get through that then comes the next stage and uh, you never know yeah, it's a very very tough competition of course so we just uh, hope to do the country proud I think that's a big part of this, right? It's about dreaming. It's about the dream you had as a kid, which has been rekindled and kept alive. It's about what happens to you this week. Even if you don't play again personally, uh, having that, um, it's about what's possible now for Hungary Cricket. Uh, the story you've told today, uh, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, these structures are in place now and the game is growing uh, in Europe and in, in other parts of the world. And, and you're an excellent story to complement that. You know, who knows where the journey takes you? I mean, yeah, sure, you're 40, and it, but you've got a quick info page and you've, you've got an international cap to your name. Uh, who knows when we check in with you, as we will uh, later in the year during that World Cup qualifier where, where Hungary Cricket gets to. That, that must be a, a very nourishing part of this, knowing that now the door is open. And sure, it might not be your generation. It probably won't be your generation. But in, tw- in 20 or 30 years' time, it might be a group of young Hungarians who find the game because of what your team's doing and, and your story, which might inspire inspire them and we've seen any number of countries around the world put the foot down and, and rise up the rankings and, and why can't Hungary? Yeah, exactly. So everybody in the national team is emphasising that it's not all about uh, us, it's not all about the ICC qualifiers. We all want the next generation uh, of uh, Hungarians to succeed. So yes, there are a lot of experts coming to Hungary, a lot of Indian companies investing in Hungary, but uh, there are also lots of uh, mixed families where either the mother or the father is Hungarian and they're living in Hungary, uh, speaking perfect Hungarian, the children coming through, there's a uh, cricket Academy, which was founded by Andrew uh, Lackenby, Australian. Sadly, he's left. Uh, now he's uh, now the, the academy is run by the Duncan Shrewbridge, an Englishman. He's also the coach of the national team. There's a lot of exciting young uh, Hungarian talent, uh, native talent coming through. And once again, it's not just a cliche. We really are doing it for the next uh, generation. So uh, just like Daniel Weston said on your podcast that the next generation in the team huddle, they'll all be speaking German in Germany and Hungarian in Hungary. That's, that's what we're really looking forward to. So it's all about, it's all about the future. We want to lay the foundations uh, for uh, a cricketing culture where there's more and more natives coming uh, through as well, apart from the uh, experts who have actually lived in Hungary for for quite a long time and are attached to Hungary. You can see that in little moments where uh, just seeing how we could keep Stan uh, kissed the Hungarian coat of arms on his helmet before he put it on. I was just watching these things whilst, whilst I was being 12th man during the tournament and I, I really, really got to uh, love these guys and love the national team and hopefully we're laying the foundations for, for a future with uh, more and more promising Hungarians coming through as well. Great stuff, Gabor Toruk. It's a great story. Uh, I lo- loved hearing it and, and looking forward to staying in touch with you and staying in touch with what goes on with Hungarian cricket. Uh, thanks for uh, telling us all about it today on The Final Word. Thanks for the opportunity and all the best to you boys, Jeff, as well. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. 
Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thanks to Gabor Taruk for taking some time to talk to me. It is what a beautiful story. I mean, every part of it uh, is better than the next, I reckon. So I look forward to following his international career. A couple of things that he asked me to add after we stopped taping. He wanted to thank his wife, Anita. He said to her, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to Malta. I would like to go. But the problem was that in the middle of a kitchen renovation, so really he needed to be at home overseeing that. She said, no, no, Go and live your dream. So he went away to Malta for a couple of weeks, played in the tournament, returned home, and the kitchen was done. So Gabor wanted to thank Anita for her forbearance on on that front. And yeah, as I said, we'll we'll hopefully be able to track him uh, through their World Cup qualifier campaign uh, later in 2022. I have sort of said to him offline that I wouldn't mind coming out to watch one of the games too. I've never been to Budapest. So if they do eventually get their ground uh, into shape in such a way that the ICC will let them play T20Is there, I, I can... I can see a bit of a final word trip coming. Uh, time will tell. Jeff, I, I think that's enough from us uh, for the week. We've gotten through quite a lot. Uh, our gratitude as well to Robert Craddock uh, earlier in the show talking to us about the late Andrew Simons, to everybody on our Patreon page, to our team in Melbourne from Bad Producer Productions, including Dave Collins, who is our editor. If you want to be involved in what we do on the show, patreon.com forward slash the final word. And we will be back for the Storytime show on the weekend. Can't wait to talk to you then. Bye-bye. Bye. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about-